Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jeff Meekum, and I'll be your host. Today's episode is another addition to our residency applicant toolkit. We'll be discussing applying to otolaryngology from a medical school that does not have an associated home otolaryngology program. We've brought another panel of four today with two current residents and two soon-to-be residents, all of whom graduated from a medical school without a home program prior to matching into ENT. So let's get started. To introduce our guests, our first panelist is Nick Randall. Nick is originally from the Pacific Northwest and is a recent graduate of the inaugural class from a West Coast medical school. He will be starting residency this summer at a program in the Midwest. Nick enjoys hiking and watching basketball with his wife, dog, and two kids. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Our second panelist is Corinne Pittman. Corinne is also a recent MD graduate from a medical school in the D.C. area. Prior to applying to otolaryngology, she also completed a research fellowship with a cochlear center for hearing and public health focused on addressing hearing loss concerns and intervention among older adults. She matched to a program on the East Coast. Corinne enjoys creative writing, fitness, and any outdoor activity. Hi, Corinne. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Third, we have Rob Solis, who graduated from a medical school along the U.S.-Mexican border in Texas back in 2019. He's currently finishing his second year of residency at a West Coast program. He recently got married to his wife, who's an OBGYN resident, and they have a beautiful Frenchie at home. Hi, Rob. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's such an honor to be here today. Our last panelist is Pompeo Quesada. He's finishing his first year of residency at a Midwest program. He graduated from a medical school along the U.S.-Mexican border as well back in 2020. He did a research year during medical school in tumor immunology and microbiome in a large cancer center in Texas. Thanks for joining us, Pompeo. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to today's panel. Uh, Obviously, there's unique challenges and opportunities for those without a home program, and I'm looking forward to hearing from all of your experiences. So let's go and get started. Our first question is, if you don't have a home ENT program, how exactly do you get exposure to the field of ENT? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, And I think it will differ for any medical school that you're at. Um, My medical school was community-based, meaning that we completed our clerkships mostly at non-academic hospitals. So most of my early clinical exposure in ENT was working with private practice doctors. You know, they might not have been department chairs or big names in research, but they were still fantastic teachers and mentors um, and really just did a great job introducing me into the field and, you know, helping me fall in love with it. On top of that, I knew that academic research and connections were things that would help me to build a successful application when it came time to apply. So I reached out to the nearest ENT residency program to me sort of geographically. I think I literally just sent an email to their program coordinator um, and from there, They were so helpful in helping me find a couple of projects that I could help out with and and some more academic mentorship as well. Yeah, pre-clerkship exposure is often critical, not only to figure out if ENT is the right fit for you, and hopefully this is early on. So personally, I went to a medical school that was not near any institution nearby for like five or six hours. We didn't have a single faculty member uh, that was ENT trained. And so similar to Nick, I reached out to private practice physicians to shadow and spend time with them. In addition, uh, being Latino, I was um, fortunate to be able to do um, an opportunity through 
the American Society of Pediatric Otolaryngology, or ASPO, during my third year, in which I spent a week-long rotation at a, an institution in Texas with a large pediatric department. And um, from there, I was uh, that solidified my decision to take the leap of faith for ENT. I encourage you guys to look at the Head Mirror Diversity and Inclusion page uh, that's listed on there for any opportunities that you may find interesting to gain some exposure. Yep. So I think for me, I utilize similar methods as Nick. Um, for me, one of my local institutions that had an otolaryngology residency program actually had their grand rounds available on the website, date and time. Uh, so I would just show up essentially and, you know, introduce myself, participate in, in the discussion and uh, continue to do that and use that as a mechanism with which to network, which I think was um, something that was a great opportunity. And another thing I would say is utilize who is at your own institution. So for example, we did have an otolaryngology department, uh, though not a residency program. Uh, so I, I, she was a huge mentor for me. But then also the surgery program director also, when I expressed interest in otolaryngology, had different resources and people that she was willing to connect me with, uh, which was something helpful. So it might be somebody that maybe you didn't necessarily would think of might be able to connect you with in otolaryngology, but it ended up uh, working out for me. And uh, I would also recommend the SUO website has um, diversity um, chairs and, and uh, advocates that ha all have their email address available on the website. So I definitely would utilize that as well if you're looking uh, to make connections within ENT. As someone who came from a medical school without a home program, did you ever feel disadvantaged as an applicant? How did you overcome that if you did? And did you feel in any way that it helped differentiate you or give you a unique experience when you were applying? Yeah, I, I think this is a very uh, important question. Uh, I think initially I did feel disadvantaged, but then I think it's also part of our identity as applicants, uh, where you come from. During my interview, I, I really kind of mentioned it and made it part of, of why I decided to pursue otolaryngology. I didn't really mention it in my in my personal statement and I it was kind of a background on my on my applicant or my ERAS. However, in my interview I, I I didn't mention it quite a bit and and I highlighted how my diversity in the other things I did, whether it was in my research in, in cancer or my research in medical education, all helped me find my, my identity as applying to and as an otolaryngology applicant. And in the same token, it allowed me to venture into different ways on how I can pursue different uh, areas or different uh, research in different areas or different specialties and still be able to tie it back to otolaryngology. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Pompeo. Um, I do think it sort of becomes a part of your identity as an applicant. Um, sometimes we talk about playing the game of applying, in, a, in other words, how, how well can you strategically build a residency application that will maximize your chances of matching based on previous, you know, whether that's NRMP data or, or advice you've heard from other applicants. So things like getting your name on as many papers as possible, finding the biggest names to write your letter, things like that. Um, things that you think of a, a sort of historically strong application. And I think that that is much harder to do 
as an applicant without a home program. It's harder to get those numbers. It's harder to build an application that may look very impressive compared to other otolaryngology applicants because it is very competitive. However, I don't think that you're disadvantaged in any way um, in your preparation for becoming a resident. In other words, I don't feel that my medical education, that my surgical education in any way was worse uh, compared to those with with home programs. Um, and I agree with Pompeo that I think it's very important to highlight it. So I, I did mention it in my personal statement and throughout my application, um, and especially during residency interviews, because I think it's important to highlight that, you know, I, I didn't have this sort of infrastructure or built-in mentorship that you would have with the home program. And I had to work a little bit harder to, to be competitive as an otolaryngology applicant. And that's a fine balance. You know, I don't think you want to be a sob story and constantly saying, uh, you know, I'm the victim here, I'm disadvantaged. But certainly saying, um, hey, just so you know, I didn't have a home program and I, I sort of had to work a little bit harder for this. And speaking of that uh, in research, how would you recommend getting involved in research if your home school does not have like robust research opportunities within the field of otolaryngology? Yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the websites that I mentioned previously, Society of University Otolaryngologists Head and Neck Surgeons, has a list of diversity liaisons for essentially every residency program in otolaryngology, and they have emails um, as well as the names of the diversity liaison available. Uh, so I definitely would utilize that website. Um, I also just personally would research um, different potential investigators in the area that were doing projects in otolaryngology. Uh, and if I saw something that was of interest, I would cold email, uh, you know, short emails showing my interest, uh, giving a little bit of background and ask for opportunities. And that was a way actually that I was able to uh, secure research for my research here that I did with the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health. Uh, so I would also say just don't be afraid to, um, you know, send an email, put yourself out there. Uh, that could also open some doors as well uh, for looking for research projects if you don't have a home otolaryngology residency program. I think doing research is uh, is difficult, even not not just specifically for laryngology, but if you go to a medical school that is not as robust in a in basic science or clinical research, it can even be tough just finding a mentor in any research project. Uh, so I, I I think cold emailing um, principal investigators or mentors at your institution or or nearby institution is critical, but it's also very important to figure out what you're passionate about in, in, in researching, whether you would want to pursue clinical research or basic science or medical education, whatever it may be. And there's always a way that you can tie it back to whatever it may be in order laryngology. Uh, we got a, one of the things I, I try to make a point when I was in medical school and even now is that not just otolaryngologists see um, pathology or or issues that affect the head and neck or that affect things that in in the mouth or things that will impact in public health for issues in otolaryngology. Uh, so thinking about um, how some pediatricians will see pathology in the head and neck, uh, pathologists will see things in the head and neck as well. So when you when you go to a medical school kind of that doesn't have an ENT or 
a faculty member or a department, there's always an opportunity for you to reach out to all these different departments that will that will see very similar pathology for you to get involved in research. And along those lines as well, um, you can you can always um, reach out to different institutions and pursue research in in other areas. Um, personally, for myself, I I did my research in in pancreatic cancer. However, I I eventually started going above that and doing things involved in the oral microbiome or things like that, that ultimately uh, have influenced what I plan to do in research for the rest of my, uh, my residency training and ultimately my career. Yeah, Karine and, and Pompeo raised very important points. Uh, I know each of them have completed a research year, which um, people should consider if it's in their best interest, financially feasible, and if they can do it. Personally, um, my now wife and I couples match, so I could not do that. And so things that Corinne and Pompeo already brought up were, were reaching out to nearby ENT institutions and um, knocking on a few doors. Like It doesn't hurt to ask. The worst thing that can happen is uh, you don't get a reply or they say no, and you're exactly where you were beforehand. Um, and so... Another important um, resource are alumni from your institution. So these are people that have successfully matched. If uh, your your institution has already had classes uh, graduate, that more than likely are willing to help you out. They're invested in in people that are disadvantaged like you, and and they may uh, act as great resources for you. And in that way, they could connect you to one of their mentors to hopefully do, um, I don't know, a, a review article or a case report or a medical education project, things like that. And, and when you do get an opportunity, it is critical that you work very, very hard for those opportunities because you want to be known as someone dependable and independent and uh, you meet deadlines way in advance. This will open up more doors for you and you will get more uh, opportunities down the road. So we've already mentioned this before, but how and when should you start building relationships with mentors at institutions that have otolaryngology residency programs for things like networking and letters of recommendation, et cetera? I would emphasize as early as possible. Um, I think that the earlier, the better, especially the minute you decide otolaryngology is for you. For me, I decided a bit late in my third year. So I knew that uh, networking was going to be super important for the upcoming application cycle. Um, And so a couple of ways to do that. Again, I, I keep mentioning SUO, but just having available emails. If there's a program you're interested in, um, definitely email a representative from the institution that might be able to put you in contact with someone who could be a mentor for you. Um, and, and that could be an opportunity. Um, also, if you have the opportunity to attend any national conferences, I know a lot of them lately have been virtual. Um, and that was an opportunity that I utilized as well and even was able to present. Another way to do that is through the Harry Barnes Society, which is a the otolaryngology section of the National Medical Association, and they have monthly meetings that they allow students to present before otolaryngologists, uh, different attendings at different institutions. And it doesn't have to be research. It could be just a case that you saw that was interesting or um, something that you were passionate about within otolaryngology. And 
a lot of people attend those meetings as well. So that could be another way to network. And that was something else I definitely utilized uh, in the upcoming application cycle. And again, uh, anyone at your institution, uh, don't be afraid to ask and, and express your interest in laryngology because I do believe at the end of the day that there could be networking that could be made, whether or not it's in your specialty. I think the key thing that you should keep in mind is that many faculty across the country are, are really invested in medical education and helping medical students reach their goals. And so um, you'd be surprised how well connected these people are and how sometimes just asking for help or asking for advice can really open the door for for another introduction with someone else. You can also find um, faculty mentors who are invested in medical students by seeing the names that pop up um, on social media or on recent publications or, or have leadership positions in the academy and sometimes cold email, emailing them, asking them for any sort of advice or just talking for five or 10 minutes can help you just uh, make a connection. And the important thing is sustaining that relationship. Like you don't want to reach out to, uh, to 20 people. You want to reach out to a, a few people that you're genuinely interested in getting to know that maybe share a similar background as you. And from there, just uh, reaching out every now and then, uh, just checking in, asking for very uh, directed advice to help you along the process. In addition, um, I already mentioned reaching out to your alumni. And oftentimes, like I said, they, they're they willing to help you out. And so personally, being a second year resident, I've had uh, medical students reach out to me for help and I've connected them to faculty within my institution that I know are invested in other in helping others. And so uh, that's always a great way to uh, network. So I wanted to follow up on what you were saying there. So when you're looking to identify mentors and institutions that have otolaryngology programs, should you be looking in certain regions? Like, is it better to be at one that's close by you or far away? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it ultimately comes down to your goals. Where do you want to end up? Do you do you have family ties or regional ties? Well, uh, then it behooves you to, to target those programs. But for for in general, what I would say is if you develop a relationship with uh, a faculty member that that is in a certain institution, it may be in your interest to um, do an away rotation there or uh, and try to really uh, work with them clinically. And that way, down the road, they could be a potential letter writer, and the substance of that letter may be more fruitful than just meeting someone on a one month rotation and, and having like two or three interactions and hoping that that letter has uh, substance that can help you in your application. Yep. I would definitely echo what Rob was stating. Uh, another thing I would say for me personally uh, I did have a mentor that was able to put me in touch with and even recommend others who I should talk to. So I would say if you do have someone like that or have connected with somebody similar as Rob said, it definitely would behoove you to use that opportunity and potentially use that for an away rotation. Um, I would also say uh, that if you have a mentor who's able to reach out potentially to that program, that might also be helpful even with securing an away rotation um, at that institution um, for you to participate. 
I agree completely with uh, Rob and Corinne. One thing I would say regarding this sort of geographic um, tag on this question is I think a lot of the time faculty in these departments feel a sense of ownership of that area. So I, I did find a lot of success reaching out to the programs that were geographically close to me and saying, hey, I'm in this area. I'm working with some of the private practice physicians or, or whoever else here, but I'd love to to get to know your department to, to build a relationship. Uh, but again, you know, it's, it's like Rob was saying, I think it all depends on what your goals are, where you want to end up, um, who you'd like to, to build these connections with. And I, I really don't think that there's an area that would be off limits or anything like that. Uh, but I would, I've, I had a lot of success reaching out geographically close and, and I would suggest it. So let's uh, follow up a little more talking about mentorship. Uh, I know you've mentioned now at this point, if you've done your your homework, you have mentors both at your home institution and at places probably around the country or at least nearby that have otolaryngology programs. So did you have mentors reach out on your behalf, whether that was during the application cycle, before or after, and were they from your homeschool or did they end up being at some of these institutions that have programs that you had begun to network with? Yep. So I would say for me, pre-interview season, I did have mentors reach out during that time because I was trying to network and build up a network uh, before going into the application cycle. Um, and not just mentors, but also utilized um, social media and mentors that I had met through that route, through Med Twitter, for example, um, to reach out so that I could broaden my network um, before anyone even saw my application. So that going in, I was a name that would, they would be able to recognize either from a meeting or from a research paper or project that I worked on with them. Uh, during the actual interview season, I did not have anyone directly reach out, though I still kept in contact with my mentors. And for those that I know that did ask for that, if they wanted to be in a certain geographic location or uh, were applying with a significant other, I think just having that honest conversation with the mentor um, is something that you should do. Um, I wouldn't encourage, uh, you know, discouraging your own program or anything like that. Not that anybody would, but, um, you know, just to keep an open, honest conversation and dialogue throughout the interview season, I think is something that would be uh, important to proceed with asking that question and, and posing that as a we're using that as an opportunity to hopefully connect with where you hope to be. I didn't have a specific mentor or any one of my letter writers speak, uh, reach out to any one of the programs uh, that I was particularly interested in. Uh, but I, I do think that it's, it's, um, it's an, a very important thing to keep in touch with your mentors, whoever, even if they're not writing your letters of recommendation, uh, but mentors that you did away rotations with or you've connected through research projects. And it's um, similar to, to what Karina alluded to, is that some of these mentors that you have with, even though you haven't specifically asked them to reach out to you, to, the, to a specific program on your behalf or a particular faculty member, or if they haven't offered yet, keeping them updated on, you know, programs that you, that you were very impressed with or that you've uh, become very interested in, uh, keeping that updated with them uh, can um, at times, in, you know, the, the ENT community and medical education field is 
is a, is a very close group and it's not as large as we may think it may be. And many times the mentors that we've met in uh, away rotation in the Midwest or in away rotation in the Northeast uh, could very possibly be very close to other faculty members across the nation that uh, would be able to speak on your rehab, even though you may not have asked them to and keeping them updated throughout your uh, interview process and post-interview and post-match uh, can allow you to connect with faculty member, not just um, uh, in places where you're interviewed, but places where they may know and be able to uh, speak to to your work ethic and your your passion for otolaryngology and other other topics. I think this is a hot topic that comes up every year, sort of during and right after interview season, um, where you hear a lot of other applicants saying, you need your mentors to reach out for you. And that's the only way you're going to match. Um, and I, I think it causes a lot of anxiety among everyone to the point where I, I wasn't going to have a mentor reach out. Um, and I sort of got caught up in all this anxiety and reached out to one of my mentors and say, Hey, would you mind just, you know, sending an email or, or picking up the phone and calling some of my top programs? And they said, this isn't necessary. You know, you've done your work, you interviewed well, you, you did what you could do. And, and I don't think I need to, and, and you just got to, sort of calm down. And, and, uh, you know, at the time it was just kind of a, a cool splash of cold water in the face and was like, okay, you just got to calm down and everything worked out. So, you know, I think when you do see those things, if, if you're applying, it's, it's totally not necessary. You don't need it to match. Um, maybe it can help in, in some scenarios, I'm sure, but, uh, definitely not a requirement. Exactly what Nick said. It's definitely not a requirement, uh, and it causes a lot of anxiety uh, for me as well. I actually did end up reaching out to two faculty that I had made connections with in my early in my third year, um, and and the reason why I felt comfortable about it was because I was very honest about who I was and what my goals were very early on before the uh, application cycle even started. And uh, they guided me through that process. And so um, I asked them for some help uh, with certain programs that my fiance at the time had um, gotten interviews in for OBGYN. And so I had very specific like uh, requests and, and they were very open to that and they did end up helping me out. However, it's a double-edged sword for medical students, and um, you have to really be in tune with your relationship with that faculty member. It may be off-putting if you ask someone that you're not as close as you think you are, and uh, you may end up burning a bridge uh, with that specific institution um, uh, with maybe the perception that you're coming off across, uh, putting off across. So. Uh, keep that in mind that if you're going to do it, you have to be very strategic about it. And it's not a requirement to do it. One thing I would also say, though, is during the interview season, if you notice that you aren't getting many interviews or or have a low number of interviews, I would definitely voice that to a mentor who you feel comfortable with, because at that point, I think it could be helpful uh, to ask them to reach out. And they might even offer, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, both your mentors and you want to successfully match into otolaryngology and, you know, it's a competitive process. So I would definitely uh, reach out as early as possible. If you do find that you are in that situation, I think that's okay. 
Okay, this next one I wanted to sample the group regarding letters of recommendation. Given that you come from a school that did not have uh, home attendings that are associated with a residency program, who exactly did write your letters? Were they ENT physicians that were not with the program? Were they non-ENT physicians who happened to be at your institution who were associated with the program? Um, who ended up writing your letters? I think this is a really key question for any applicant without a home program because letters are such a important part of the application and it's not very easy for us to get them. So my letters, uh, one of my letters was written by my surgery director at my school who was actually a colorectal surgeon, but I knew her very well. I had operated with her quite a bit and researched with her and I felt comfortable that she could write a letter that spoke to who I was as a medical student, as a person, and I felt very comfortable asking her um, for a strong letter. I also, this is also where you sort of reap what you've sown. So we've talked this entire conversation about how important it is to make connections, um, whether that's with faculty at your program or at other programs. And I, I had previously mentioned that I reached out to a, an otolaryngology program that I was very interested in to, to sort of get involved in research and I had worked on projects with them. So that that was another letter that I was able to get just working on a research project with somebody that I had reached out to. And when you're an ENT applicant without a home program, OAs can sort of be your best friend for letters of recommendation. So on my OA rotation, I was able to get two separate letters of recommendation. And I think that conversation goes a lot smoother when you sort of explain to them the situation of saying, hey, I don't have a home program. I don't have a home ENT faculty or, or faculty associated with the residency program. I hope that by working with you, you know, you'll be comfortable writing me a letter. Um, and luckily, all the, the physicians I approached were amenable to that. I want to echo with uh, what Nick said. Um, these letters of recommendation are critical. Oftentimes, the attendings at my institution have said that that's the first thing they look at in applications when they're interviewing an applicant once they've gone through the cutoffs or whatever screening tool they have to get the interview. And so um, you have to be very strategic on who you ask for your letters of recommendations. And uh, personally, I had one letter that was from my institution. It was He was actually an adjunct um, assistant professor, OMFS surgeon, head and neck trained, uh, who I did research with and shadowed and did some surgeries with. And um, I was very um, nervous about using his letter because I had asked one faculty member in, in that way rotation and asked him what, what the perception would be of an OMFS surgeon. He said, well, it's a hit or miss. At our institution, definitely don't use it because um, uh, maybe the relationship between an OMFS and ENT surgeon may not be the best. Um, and so I ended up using half of, uh, using that letter ha to half of the, uh, programs that I applied to and the other half, I didn't really have any sort of algorithm. It didn't end up making a difference. The other uh, letters that I got were all from my away rotations. And, uh, like Nick had mentioned, I had very honest conversations with, um, with the attendings that I asked. And uh, to help me with that process, I had asked the residents early on and told them, like, this is my situation. I'm looking for a letter of recommendation that will help me match. Uh, could you guide me on who's a good uh, letter writer? And, um, and 
residents are very open to helping medical students and gearing you that way and 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 even giving you opportunities by spending more time in clinic with that said person or in the operating room. And so um, work very hard and uh, have honest conversations and hopefully um, these letters become fruitful for you. Yeah, so Nick and Rob did an excellent job of laying out the importance of letters of recommendation. Uh, and really the main thing I would just add to that is you are going to get thousands of answers to this question about who's best to write your letters. Um, for me, I did have letters from all otolingologists. I, during my research year, I was also working with an otolingologist, so I was able to acquire that letter as well since I had spent that time with research and had a good relationship with my mentor. Uh, but I think that at the bottom line is really to assess your relationships with the people that you're asking for a letter. I think the strongest letter is going to come from someone who knows you well, has been able to see you work, uh, knows the effort and skills that you're able to provide. And that person is going to write a much stronger letter than somebody who you maybe spent a day in clinic with or one time in the operating room, unless you did something uh, to really blow them away. So I would definitely pay close attention and kind of assess your relationships before asking for a letter. Personally, for me, three of my of my four letters came from otolaryngology faculty that I had met and connected with in my away rotations. Uh, two were from one of my away rotations and one of them from the from my second away rotation. And my fourth letter came from my mentor during my research year. And uh, this, this mentor is a medical oncologist um, in, in pancreatic cancer, so pretty far detached from the otolaryngology world. However, during my interviews and post-interviews, some of the comments that I got about from my letters many times came from what the, my, my mentor, my research mentor, said about me. I think this highlights some of the things that as applicants we, we almost fail to see and that uh, sometimes we get caught up on the, the, the name or the, um, or the background of the, of, of the letter writer being as connected or as well connected of where we want to go. But at the end of the day, what, the, what, what your mentor, your letter writer is saying uh, really, really goes a long way uh, regarding if they can comment on your, your ability to work in clinic or your ability to see patients with them and how, how they've been able to see you. Uh, progress and, and and thrive in that. And then if they're able to also look at the other aspect of you, whether that be research or community service or whatever it may be, uh, having a letter writer that, that you feel that you've connected with and knows you in many arenas is, um, I think, almost uh, equally as important as having someone that is uh, a soul or a, uh, a, a, a faculty member at an otolaryngology program. And also to echo what um, what we've all kind of said is that being really honest about uh, about your your letters and your situation is 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 very key, especially uh, during this time where away rotations are limited, and uh, you, we may have just one or two uh, places where you've been where you're going to be rotating at or will be rotating at. One of the things I've been uh, advising students as they as they get kind of gear up to do that is uh, is be honest, be honest to the residents, to the program coordinators, and almost even consider emailing the program coordinator where you're going to be at and telling them your situation where your your letter will most likely have to come from your away rotation or one of your letters and 
helping you almost preemptively plan your schedule out where you can potentially be with faculty members that have historically uh, written letters for for applicants or away rotators or and uh, kind of working with them and, and just being honest with them about your situation is, I think, very important, especially given this times with uh, with limited away rotations. So that actually segues perfectly into our next question about away rotations. So how many ways did you end up doing and how did you choose where to do them? I'll point out that both Nick and Corinne applied during a year in which there were COVID restrictions. So in your case, if you wouldn't mind saying how many you were going to do if you weren't limited by that. I ended up doing three away rotations. Um, and I think that was my limit uh, in terms of burnout because it's a real thing. Uh these uh, month-long rotations are very intensive. You have to always put your best foot forward and be prepared more than anyone in that room. And so I chose three away rotations in, in, in different regions of the country and also different sizes and different caliber of reputation. And so uh, for me, three was a good number. Um, so I applied during the application cycle or season when COVID restrictions did apply. Uh, so initially I had planned on doing three before the restrictions took place. And that was the limit by my school um, and also uh, just what I was recommended from mentors. Um, but I did have the opportunity to, in addition to my in-person rotation, do virtual away rotations that uh, were created again during the COVID restrictions. So I did two away rotations, one of them in the West Coast and one of them in, in the Midwest. And the reason I picked these two away rotations was that uh, one of my good friends, uh, Rob, who's also here with us, uh, helped me connect with the faculty member at these institutions. And I I, when I was first becoming interested in otolaryngology and, when, and I was exploring the idea from from leaving what I previously thought I was going to do for the rest of my life to entertaining the idea of doing something completely different, uh, these are the faculty members that I first spoke to. And, and during my time and during my transition from uh, researching programs and researching different institutions and what a career would be like in otolaryngology, these were the people that were giving me advice and telling me about their about their story. So I felt uh, that I going to these institutions would be the best opportunity for me for to get letters of recommendation from faculty that I had been connecting with them via phone and and via email. And and I ended up getting my, my letters from these same people that, that I had connected with, uh, thanks to Rob, which would be at that time was a, a fourth year medical student. Very similarly to Corinne, um, I had originally planned on going on three. I think I had applied um, for five or six uh, with the plan to go on three, uh, but because of COVID ended up just doing one. And I, I really just chose the institution that I wanted to, to be at. Um, so I, there's a lot of strategy that goes into to picking where to do away rotations. And, and I think the, the strategy that I sort of subscribed to was go where you'd like to go for residency and sort of audition for them. And uh, apart from that, you know, you can see if you don't want to go there and if you'd like to, to try somewhere else. So that's what I did. In choosing these away rotations, I think it's important to be strategic as well. Uh, these are huge investments on your part. Uh, you're spending time, money, um, energy. And, and so really do your research. I spent 
several weeks of just uh, being stressed about it and and asking friends who went through the process or even reaching out to residents uh, from that institution to ask them about uh, their experiences and and whether an away rotation there would be in my best interest. Like, would I have enough exposure with the faculty there? Would or is it impacted by too many away rotators? And so um, it, those are important things to consider. Sometimes just choosing a big name institution isn't in your best interest if there's going to be five or six away rotators and uh, people may not even remember you because there's so many people. One thing I will add is that with away rotations, um, and I think Rob touched on this, is that it can be very expensive. Uh, so that was a sort of a large factor on where I chose to apply um, was how expensive it would be for me to stay there. Um, you know, I had a, a two-year-old and my wife was seven months pregnant and not a lot of med students live in luxury. So we just really couldn't afford to, to do a lot of ways to, to, you know, get an Airbnb or, or something like that for a month. So many of the places I applied to, I had a family friend that I could, you know, that had a guest room that I could stay at or something like that. And the nice thing is almost every ENT program is just great, which is one of the best things about the field. So um, you may not be limited by that as much. So I remember when I was preparing for my away rotations, my home ENT program had told me, don't worry, we'll get you all trained up before you head out on your aways and audition rotations. Given that in your circumstances, you don't have a home program, did you do a rotation at home with an ENT department before to get ready for aways? And what kind of things would you recommend in general to do to prepare to be a rock star on your away rotation? I had done one uh, one rotation in ENT, and this was in a in a private practice, a general otolaryngology uh, practice in um, in the area, and that was also the the first exposure I had really had to otolaryngology, and that's when I started entertaining the idea of pursuing a, um, a career in otolaryngology, and my. Um, after that, my next uh, my next experience with uh, ENT was in my away rotations, and that did cause me to be uh, quite a bit anxious for these away rotations, uh, especially since my only exposure to the field was in a non-academic setting in private practice. And I think gearing up for for my for my preparation for my ways, I think my my biggest resource was uh, was Rob, who was at that time had just started PGY one year, and but I feel that this would uh, this is a kind of an idea that should uh, that would translate to a lot of different people, and that is. Uh, talking to the to to your friends, to your alumni, previous um, uh, people that you've met in 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 conferences that are now in 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 residency, and talking to them about this, and and one talking about you know what uh, what would be the dynamic if you had never been in an academic um, ENT group or rotating with them is knowing the dynamic of how things function for otolaryngology. And how it sometimes is different than what you would expect in other surgical, um, in other surgical specialties. And uh, as far as uh, preparation, aside from the fact that um, doing a lot of reading and using resources uh, of typical books that we that we use for away rotations, I think preparing for in a way also uh, is m making sure that your uh, things like housing is uh, is all set before you start going on on your away rotations and um, 
I, that's something I wish I would have done a little bit more preemptively and making sure that, that things were all squared away because you definitely don't want to be stressing out about it while you're in a, in, in a way and thinking about your, your next way, uh, which uh, probably won't be something um, uh, acutely uh, of an issue given the COVID restrictions going on. But in the future, uh, making sure that uh, things are squared away in regards to your housing, your transportation, uh, making sure that you you understand uh, where you're going to be at in this in these away rotations. Many of these aways uh, have different hospitals where you're going to be, and sometimes you have to strategically plan where you're going to be living in regards to the location of the different hospitals, uh, which I, I I think it's important, particularly in uh, in bigger cities where transportation might not be as as simple as getting in your car and uh, and driving to the next hospital. I'll preface my answer by saying I think 90% of being a rock star on an away rotation is how hard you work and how well you fit with the team. I think preparing, uh, you know, reading ENT secrets, doing flashcards, whatever it is, reading, uh, being up to date on, on cancer staging and things like that, knowing your anatomy, those are all very important things. Um, and you should certainly be prepared to, to answer questions, to have solid clinical reasoning, but you don't need to get every pimp question right. Um, what is important is that you work hard, you come early, you stay late, um, you go home when you're told to go home, and you get along with people. You know, you're not trying to um, you're not trying to make other away students look bad. You're trying to to help the resident in any way you can. Um, you're just getting along with the team. And a lot of that doesn't matter if you have a home program or not. Similarly to Pompeo, I did do an ENT rotation before completing my OA, and that was with a private practice group. And one thing that was very helpful was just remembering that they all did an ENT residency. So while they may be in the community and in non-academic settings, they all know what going through that residency is like. They've had array rotators work with them in the past. So I was just very upfront with them and said, hey, in the next several weeks, I'm going on a rotation at this institution and I'm really trying to prepare for that in the best way possible. They knew exactly what I needed to prepare in the best way and, and how they could sort of play a part in that preparation as well. So I would just be very upfront with whatever rotation you may be doing to prepare. And even if you don't have that opportunity, you know, just put your best foot forward and, and be yourself. Do any of you have any additional resources that you'd recommend to applicants without a home program? As far as additional resources, um, uh, we, um, along with a with a, a group in in Hedmere and some students across the nation and faculty, we've we've been uh, striving to uh, to create the National Otolaryngology Interest Group and. Uh, both uh, both Rob or, and, and I are really excited about this initiative, and it really ties into that last question that was uh, that was uh, uh, stated in the how to prepare for away rotations. Um, this National Otolaryngology Interest Group aims to help out students that have um, that have particular barriers um, coming from a non-home program or coming from a medical school with not of a lot of students or applicants have matched into otolaryngology and it gives you an opportunity to connect with with uh, with the otolaryngology community uh, across the nation so we, we we're launching this uh, launching this group uh, it's uh, the initials are noig uh, with head mirror and 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 our goal would be to 
create opportunities for uh, for exposure into otolaryngology, even even at the times of the pre uh, clerkship, uh, creating opportunities for mentorship for for students, and um, also giving opportunities to maybe connect people to do research preparation for ERAS, uh, create initiative for students and for um, for programs to increase our presence and uh, in diversity and inclusion. And one of our initiatives that we're going to be uh, launching with, and it's going to be great, our, our, our chair of uh, education uh, in our kind of medical student executive board is, is leading a project into how to prepare for away rotations, whether that be how to, how to present a patient that uh, had, a, had a thyroidectomy the, the, the day prior to, you know, things to carry around in your pocket when you're rounding. So kind of almost the, the essentials or the 101 essentials to, to array rotations, which uh, would be a great resource for, for students and uh, particularly students that are uh, gearing up to do their away rotations. And uh, along those lines, NOIG will, will create opportunities for, for, for students to uh, connect with mentors. And we're also planning to do uh, one of our big initiatives will be uh, to yearly have our, um, our our national meetings with a uh, with a research symposium and uh, allow students to connect not only with 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 each other but also to connect with residents and faculty ac- across the nation. Um, thankfully, we've uh, we've been uh, recruiting and hopefully we'll be able to have a launch date in the next couple months. And uh, recently, we actually uh, we were recruiting one of our, our last. Uh, regional resident advisors, and uh, we recently recruited uh, Kareen to come join us as well. So we're all very excited for this initiative, and we really hope that uh, it will help a lot of students uh, uh, in the near future and also in the, in the many years to come. I would really quickly just say, um, use things like Odomatch and Student Doctor Network very sparingly. I think a lot of good information can be found on those, but I think more than anything, it's just a lot of people... Um, who don't really know what they're talking about, talking as if they know what they're talking about. Um, And that just causes a lot of anxiety. So I I certainly was very guilty of being on Automatch quite a lot during application and interview season. And people would say things that caused me a lot of anxiety that didn't end up being true. So just sort of sift the good from the bad with those um, and use them sparingly. Um, I would just say in preparation for rotations, even if just kind of a quick fresh start, Headmare also has great resources um, and even some videos that I think were helpful and in preparing for cases. Um, I'm sure uh, people have probably heard about ENT Secrets. That was a a great book that's available online uh, to kind of just go through and refresh yourself with Um, some concepts and questions that you might hear for your rotation. So I think those two resources could be great uh, when preparing for away rotations. I'll point out on the headmirror.com website, Rob and Pompeo actually worked together with a group to put together a page for no home program applicants under our medical student section that has a lot of what we've talked about today, um, but in text form if you're interested in that. So knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself at the beginning if you had to do this whole thing over again? I think uh, just knowing that it's going to be very hard, uh, no matter if you come from a place that has an ENT program or not. 
there will be many ups and downs and many doubts along the way. And you have to trust in your work ethic and dedication that got you into medical school and got you this far to make sure that you reach your ultimate goal. And the last thing I will say is be honest with yourself along the way. Um, If you feel like your step scores or your grades or you're not getting the feedback that um, indicates that you're going to do well, uh, you should have some backup plans because the worst thing that can happen is not matching or not preparing accordingly, which has major financial and also just um, huge uh, implications in your life if things don't go well for you. But it is all possible as long as you put in the effort. So I definitely would echo what Rob said, definitely believing yourself going into this process, application season and interview season can be quite stressful and timely. So definitely pace yourself. Uh, I would also say don't be afraid to reach out. Um, There are several different resources that we've talked about here today and ways that you can reach out and find mentors or even just get advice from residents. Um, I definitely would definitely utilize that as an opportunity. Um, I reached out to several residents um, via med Twitter, uh, just messaging and getting advice before interviews. And even even before interviews, just uh, with my application, I had one who even offered to go over my personal statement with me. So I definitely would not be afraid to reach out and seek help wherever you can, especially since we're coming from programs that do not have a home residency. I think I would tell myself to trust the process. Uh, I think many times we harper on, um, you know, what, what we said during the, our presentation of our patient, or you know, if you're in the right position for the retraction. And and at the end of the day, you've you've worked you've worked hard for many many years to to get to that point, to get to the point where you submit your application to showcase what you've done for many years and. And at the end of the day, you got to trust that you've worked hard throughout these many years to to at this point showcase what you've done and tell and and talk to programs about why you would be a great asset to, to their to their program and to their to their to their network. And I think also I would I would kind of summarize things as uh, as kind of a last minute advice, and it would be to uh, do three things. Um, be be genuine and humble in in your away rotation and as a as an applicant, uh, work hard and just be passionate about what you do. Even if you decided on applying to otolaryngology late in the process and a lot of your previous experience was in something completely unrelated, um, your your passion for what you do, the passion for what you've worked on, and whether it be research or community outreach or whatever it may be. That, that will resonate with whoever you're interviewing with, with whom, whomever you're talking to. And at the end of the day, it's part of who you are and that you're, you're passionate about what you do. And if, even if your otolaryngology experience is very limited, these, uh, these factors of you being hardworking and being passionate and being humble and genuine will translate to your years to come and for the rest of your career. So just, just keep that in mind as you, as you apply, as you do away your rotations and, if you're a student hearing this and you're in your pre-clerkship years or starting off your third year, um, that goes along with every aspect of your medical education. I guess if I, if I wish I knew something at the beginning of this whole process, uh, I wish I could sort of tell myself to be less anxious about reaching out to people 
it really takes a village to build an otolaryngology applicant. And we've discussed a lot about reaching out to people and the importance of making connections. And I'm somewhat of an introvert. So making a lot of those cold calls or cold emails was very difficult for me at times, which is, it's just so funny because one of the reasons I love ENT and otolaryngology is the physicians are just so wonderful. Um, And not once did I get an email back saying, you know, I'm too busy. You're, you're bothering me, which is what I was always worried about. Um, and so many of the people I reached out to just out of the blue, like, um, my, my friends here have, were so accommodating and so helpful. So, you know, if I could go back to, to sort of one or two years ago, I'd just say, <laughs> have less stress about that part of the process because you need, you need the help. Nobody does this alone and, and you need to, to sort of build your village to help you do this. I think that's an excellent note to end on today. Um, Thank you all for taking the time to talk with us. I think this has been a really excellent panel and hopefully this episode will be a very good resource for other students who find themselves in the shoes that you were in just a little bit ago. For those of you listening in right now who might have more questions for our panelists so that you're able to reach out to them, we'll be sure to tag each of them on our social media when we feature this episode on our page. If you don't happen to follow us yet on social media, you can find us on both Instagram and Twitter at headmirror underscore com and keep an eye out for when we post about this episode. Well, that about wraps it up for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Keep an eye out for our next episode and we'll catch you next time.